it wasn't just Mary Lumpkin's story that I was trying to tell, but it was as many enslaved people's stories as I could fit into the book. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Sadiqa Johnson, author of the historical novel Yellow Wife. It's always a voice that said, Sadiqa, get up and just try it again. Get up and just try it again. Get up and try it again. And so I did. And, and I'm glad that I did, because honestly, I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't writing. Sadiqa Johnson is a former public relations manager who spent several years working with well-known authors such as J.K. Rowling, B.B. Moore Campbell, Amy Tan, and Bishop T.D. Jakes before becoming an author herself. Now, she is the award-winning author of four novels. Her accolades include being the recipient of the National Book Club Award, the Phyllis Wheatley Award, and the USA Best Book Award for Fiction. Her novel, Yellow Wife, was named one of the most anticipated historical novels of 2021 by O Magazine. She is a Kimbalo Fellow and a tall poppy writer. She also teaches fiction writing for the MFA program at Drexel University. Originally from Philadelphia, she currently lives near Richmond, Virginia with her husband and three children. Well, I wanted to start with uh, Mary Lumpkin, the inspiration for your main character, Phoebe Dolores Brown. Can you tell us more about who Mary Lumpkin was? So for Mary Lumpkin, unfortunately, there was not a lot of information that I was able to find on her specifically. I found that women like Mary Lumpkin have been largely blotted from our history. What I did know was that she arrived at the Lumpkin's jail as a child and basically that Robert Lumpkin chose her to be um, the mother of his children. They had five children together, and uh, she raised them on what is called the devil's half acre. I know that two of the daughters uh, did go up to Massachusetts, to Ipwich, Massachusetts, where they passed uh, for white and attended school there. I know one daughter stayed back with her, and I'm not sure if the daughter who stayed with her stayed because she was um, not light enough to pass or if it was a decision that she just made for herself. I know that when Robert Lumpkin died uh, in 18, I believe it was 1865 off the top of my head, I know that he willed the jail, the Lumpkin's jail, and as well as his fortune to Mary Lumpkin, because he had fully emancipated her prior to his death, 
the will was uh, law abiding. And so she was able to inherit what he left for her, which was not the case for some of the other women that I learned about. For instance, Karina Hinton, who actually appears in the story uh, when Omohandro, uh, Silas Omohandro left his property to her, she got caught up in a lot of legal battles because she was not fully free. But for Mary Lumpkin, she was. And so she inherited the jail and she inherited his money and she leased it to Nathaniel Culver, who was a Baptist minister who was trying to teach uh, Freeman. That space went from being the devil's half acre to God's half acre because it went from the place where uh, enslaved people were punished and tortured and their families were being separated to now it became a learning center. And then fast forward to the early 1800s, it then becomes what we know as Virginia Union University, which is one of the first HBCUs uh, in the country, uh, still here in Richmond today. So she, you know, she was very impactful in history, but there's still not a lot of intimate details about her day-to-day life. And so most of that I largely had to either lean on the stories of other women like her that I came across or just kind of use my imagination and and be a, a, a portal or channel, so to speak, so that whatever that energy was that she was trying to communicate to me could kind of come through onto the page. Well, the history is is fascinating and tragic, of course. Um, but I mean, I didn't know any of this, so I was I was glad, I guess, to learn about it through your novel. I am curious. Why did you decide to change the names of the characters from from the actual people that inspired their inspired them in your book? As much research as I did, and I do try and stay as close to the truth as possible, I wanted the ability to create fiction where I needed to create fiction. And by keeping Mary Lumpkins, I didn't want someone who found information that I didn't find in my research to say, oh, that's not what happened, or that wasn't true. Uh, For me, being able to kind of say that the story was inspired by them, which it was, just really gave me room to do what I'm good at, which is fiction. Because at the heart of me, I am a, a fiction writer. I think that's very well put. I like what you said, the ability to create fiction where I needed to create fiction. That's a good way to say it. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about now some of the criticism for the book. Now, it's obviously gotten a ton of praise and deservedly so. Um, but the only criticism, if there is any, exists about the graphic nature of the book. Um, why did you decide to keep some of those graphic scenes regarding sex and and violence and and how important do you think that is that that people you know feel uncomfortable through that it was very important for me to tell the truth and and that was what i came across in my research that you know our history is really our american history really is set upon the backs of these enslaved people and and the things that they had to endure in order for us to be here today. So all of the violence that happens in the book and particularly all of the flogging scenes that I've written, those all actually happen. I did not make one single scene up. I came across them um, in various forms. I read a lot of books by enslaved people. One that was particularly helpful was 50 Years a Slave by Charles Ball. 
And I, I came across so many different forms of violence that he witnessed with his own eyes in that book um, that I was able to then use for Yellow Wife. For me, I couldn't shy away from the brutality that the enslaved people suffered because it happened. And when I when I received the story of Yellow Wife, it felt like a charge. I remember when I discovered the story, I was walking the Richmond Slave Trail and I wasn't looking to write historical fiction. I had written largely contemporary women's fiction prior to my first three novels were set on things that I knew and understood. But I, I feel like the story of Yellow Wife kind of chose me. Um, and in the moment of being in Richmond, walking the slave trail, feeling what our ancestors must have felt as they was brought you know, on the James River and marched into Richmond and marched into these different slave pens, I felt this energy, I felt this charge to tell the story the way it needed to be told. And, and I took it very seriously as it wasn't just Mary Lumpkin's story that I was trying to tell, but it was as many enslaved people's stories as I could fit into the book. And a portion of that is the violence, a portion of that is the sexual trauma that they experience. And so I needed to tell the truth. Well, I, I want to praise you for doing that. I, I, I know it must have been difficult. I can tell you, and I don't want to give too much away about the book, but certainly when the, the pregnant woman lost her child, you know, from being being whipped that I mean that was just that was very difficult to to read and to, to it was very sad but I think it's important to to share those things especially in this way through fiction I, I teach social studies here in Minnesota in high school and you know we go over some of those facts but you don't get to know the people you don't get to know just exact you know the full brutality of it as you said mm-hmm. yeah and that scene was true unfortunately it did not happen at the jail. I came across it in my research, and so I, I wove it into a scene at the jail, um, but it did happen. Well, tell us more about your trip to the the slave trail in Richmond and, and how this inspired your book. And I'm also curious about, you know, when did they turn that into a historic site and, and, and how important do you think it is that they that, that is there now? Yeah, I believe it happened in 2016 that uh, there was a bunch of people here in Richmond who got together and decided that they needed to kind of preserve the history of the enslaved people. And so the Richmond Slave Trail is about two and a half miles, and there's 17 markers along the trail. And each marker gives the picture of what it was like for the enslaved people as they came into Richmond. And my family and I really was just kind of on on a field trip, so to speak, with some friends who came down from New Jersey to visit us. And we let the kids take turns reading the markers because I'm always trying to teach no matter what. I'm always trying to make sure the kids are getting something particularly about history because I think in order for us to know where we're going, we got to know where we came from. And I stress that a lot with my own children. And When we got to the marker that talked about the Lumpkins Jail, it was described as one of the most horrific places uh, in Richmond. It was a punishing center and a slave pen where enslaved people were tortured and families were separated. Between 1844 and 1865, over 200,000 enslaved people had gone through this one particular jail. 
And Robert Lumpkin, the owner of the jail, was described as the bully trader. He was also called the devil. And this land was called the devil's half acre. What really caught my attention was that the marker said that he was married to a black woman. Her name was Mary Lumpkin. And while he was one way uh, in his business, he was compassionate towards her and their five children. And I remember thinking, my gosh, what is life like really for her? Is this a marriage of survival? Did she love him? And how was it for her raising those five children on a half acre of land where fellow enslaved people were separated from their families and tortured um, and in bondage on a daily basis? What was that like for her? And that was really the beginning of the story for me, was just wanting to know more. It always starts for me with curiosity. I wanted to know more about Mary Lumpkin and I wanted to know more about her children. And that was the beginning. I, I think that's great that that's now there and available for people to see and that it's now, I mean, think of how much that's expanded from just from what you were inspired to do. And now the, the thousands of people that have had a chance to read your novel, Yellow, uh, Yellow Wife. I think that's great. Well, I want to talk about your writing. I've kind of put all this, dumped all this history onto you and, and, and I don't want it to, to stay there too long um, and, you know, make you the spokeswoman of, of, of all that. So let's talk about some of your success here. The The book's done very well. It was um, named one of the most anticipated historical novels of 2021 by, by O Magazine. Talk about from wh where you started, you know, having to publish through your own press to, to where you are today. Wow. It's been a journey. I will tell you, I have all the, the bruises <laughs> to prove it. I, I started off... Um, as a, well, I'll go back. I, my first job was in publishing. I worked at Scholastic Books. And as a, as a young person, I, I had the privilege of working on the first three Harry Potter books. I worked in the publicity department. And so my job was really to help get publicity for authors. And it was there that I started to kind of pin my first novel, which is called Love in a Carry-On Bag. And I would I would write each morning on the way to on the way to work. I, I caught the train in and out of New York City every day. And so I would I would write on the way to work. And then I would close my door every day about four o'clock and pretend like I was working on something for work, but really what I was doing was putting my changes into the computer so that I could run over to our shared printer because, you know, back then it was like 17 people on one printer mm -hmm. and I would run and I would snatch my novel off the printer because I didn't want anybody to know what I was doing. I then went from Scholastic Books to G.P. Putnam's Son and I, I worked on adult books. And so I worked on Rebecca Walker and Amy Tan and Catherine Coulter, Nevada Barr, and a lot of New York Times bestselling authors. And back then we had the privilege of riding in town cars with them. So when they went to the Today Show or they had a book signing at Barnes and Noble in, in New York City, we would go. So I would pick their brains and ask them questions. What, what's your writing schedule like? How did you get started? What was it like publishing that first book? What type of advice would you give to new authors? And so I was kind of pulling all this information together as I was working on that first novel. Fast forward, my husband and I got married and I had my first child. I had maybe about five drafts of Love in the Carry-On Bag finished and I thought, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. 
I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to raise my son. I'm going to get this book published and I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. That's what's going to happen. So I, I did everything. I had an agent. She took Love in a Carry-On Bag out to market. And one by one, every single ed editor turned me down. And so it was like a very depressing place to be where the thing that you want most in the world does not come to fruition. But my husband, uh, being an entrepreneur himself, convinced me that we could do this ourselves, that we would start a small publishing company, we would put Love in a Carry-On Bag out, and we would hit the ground running, which we did. I pretended to be, or I was the salesperson, but I pretended to be someone else. So I would call up bookstores with a, an alias and pitch Love in a Carry-On Bag to them and convince them that they needed to carry it in their, in their bookstore. I traveled up and down the East Coast going to every book festival, any place where I could buy a booth and set up my retractable and sell Love in a Carry-On Bag hand by hand. And I did this for so long that it started to gain a little bit of traction. I was very fortunate that in 2013, Love in a Carry-On Bag won the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award for Best Fiction. And that gave me a little bit of notoriety. So the editor who I had hired to help me with Love in a Carry-On Bag then became my agent, and she went to market with my second novel, Second House from the Corner. And with that book, I was now kind of on the map, so to speak. And so where I went from nobody wanting to buy Love in a Carry-On Bag, all of the hard work that I put into that book put me in position that I had three editors that wanted to purchase Second House from the Corner. And in fact, I got a two book deal with St. Martin's Press and they bought both books, Second House and, and Then There Was Me. Well, from there, my editor gets downsized from St. Martin's Press. And so now my books are orphans, but I am trying to figure out what I'm going to write next. I, I find out the story of Yellow Wife. I'm writing the book without a contract, without an editor. And then we take that book to market. And thank goodness Simon & Schuster wanted to purchase it. And, and now it's the book that you have in your hand. That, that is such a great story. Um, and I mean, just to hear you say you, you called bookstores with an alias and, and you did all, you, you, know, you, you hustled. And um, it's just wonderful to, to hear it come to fruition. And I'm sure while you were doing it, you know, and, and having the rejection and maybe not having the success that you, that you anticipated, it's great to see that come all the way around. Yeah, it was difficult. You know, it was moments where I wanted to quit. There were moments where I was sitting by the lake crying my eyes out, asking God, like, why, why not me? You know, but it was always a voice that said, Sadiqa, get up and just try it again. Get up and just try it again. Get up and try it again. And so I did. And, and I'm glad that I did, because honestly, I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't writing. I always joke to say I probably, when I lived in New Jersey, I would say, I guess I would just go work at the, the Newark uh, Art Museum. I would just get a job there because at least I could be around other people's art all day. I don't know what that job would have been, but that was always my thought. Well, I guess I could just go work at an art museum, um, but I don't know that it would fulfill me the way writing does.
I was I was curious, does writing, do you think, does it come naturally to you? How much of it is sort of a passion and something that you just love to do? And then how much is it you working your craft and, and using the tools um, of writing to, to make it all work? Oh, it's definitely a combination. I will say, like, I didn't write today and I feel a little bit like I could feel this thing that's happening in my head that's saying you got to do a little bit like even if it's not you know the full the full writing that I did yesterday <laughs> I need to write something um so when I don't write it's always kind of at the back of my mind there's this little naggy feeling I feel um if I don't write for a very long time I feel pretty cranky so it's a it's a thing that I have to do it's almost like breathing um it's like meditation it's like prayer for me so it's the thing that I have to do Craft is very important to me. Um, I study other authors all the time. I read um, a ton of books. I started listening to books on audio this year, which has been a game changer for me because now I can I can read and listen. And so I'm constantly always surrounded uh, by stories. In fact, before we got on today, I was listening to Roxane Gay on Masterclass talking about writing. And so I try to surround myself in craft and writing and technique and tools so that when I sit down to write, everything is just kind of clicking in place for me. Um, but but it's always a combination, I would say. It's a combination of working my tools. Um, I have to get quiet so that I can have that intuitive part kick in. I know when I'm doing the right thing, when I lose track of time. When I look up and an hour and 15 minutes passed and I don't even know where the time went, for me, that's when I'm in the sweet spot. That's when I'm, I like to say I drop down into this like portal and I'm in the writer's world. So I look for that, you know, on a daily basis. And sometimes I can't always get in because I'm distracted and, or, you know, I'm restless or something like that. But once I get in there, I know I'm cooking with gas. Well, I like to hear you say talk about the importance of reading because I find myself often saying, well, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to read. I have more to write. I have a blog post to do. I have research to do. Um, but yeah, you point out that reading is just as important as doing all those other things. For sure. It really is. And it informs your writing. I always tell my students, um, don't shy away from reading in the genre that you want to write. Sometimes my students, they worry about plagiarism. Well, I don't want to read a book about enslaved people if I'm writing a book about enslaved people. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense because you're not plagiarizing, but you're being inspired. Um, you're learning technique. You're seeing things that you may not have seen before, and it'll inform your writing. Like everything that you do in the outside world needs to inform your writing. And reading is a big part of that. Well, you brought up your teaching, and I wanted to ask you about that. Now, if I'm, you're you're in the MFA program at Drexel, is that right? Yes, I do. Um, I do what's called packet exchange at Drexel, um, and so I'm given a few students every semester, and I work very closely with them on a particular piece of writing. Well, I was curious: does working with students in that way does it? inform your own writing? Does it help you see your writing more clearly by teaching others how to write? What I, I, I met with two of my two of my students this week and what I realized was that sharing with them, because I'm in the midst of writing my fifth novel and I'm only on the second draft, so everything is still very new. Sharing that experience that I'm going through 
with them lets them know that there's not too much separating us. While you're in the MFA program and you're working on that first book, as I'm working on my fifth book, we're still kind of in the same space. And so I'm able to give them tools and techniques that I'm using to push through on this draft of the book. And so I feel like the relationship between you know me being with students it's almost like I'm there to help them, but they're also helping me because as I talk out the process, I'm like, oh yeah, that is what I'm doing. And oh yeah, that does work. Um, so it, it's really, I really, really enjoy it. And it's something that I think I will always do. Yeah, that sounds kind of symbiotic in that way. Um, you, in, in an interview, maybe I read it or maybe it was an interview, you talk about journaling and, and, and having a connection to your characters. I think you, in, in one interview, you said, you know, you just say to your character, how are you doing today? You kind of have a conversation with them. Is that important to you to have that connection? Can you can you tell us more about what that means to you? It is, and I'm so glad you reminded me of that because I haven't done that this week. But sometimes when I sit down and I can't find a particular character, I will just write in my journal and I'll say, you know, Phoebe, good morning. How are you? Uh, what's going on today? Or what is it that you need me to know? What am I missing? You know, I, I write to them, I talk to them, you know, because they are people in my head. So I, I, I do that. And I think I haven't done it this week because the, the character that I'm working with, she and I have been working together for, I have two characters that I'm working on at the same time for the same novel. And she and I have been together all week. So she's just right there waiting for me. When I sit down and open up draft two, she's like, Hey, and I'm like, Hey, so we just get, we just get to work. But I, I, I suspect when I put her down and pick up the other character, I'll have to say, Hey, good morning. What's going on? What have I missed in your life since we've been apart? You know, it's just a way of connecting on a deeper level um, and giving them, you know, characters deserve all the credit and, and I have to honor where they are and the story that they want to tell and not always get so caught up in this, you know, outline that I have constructed for myself, but more so give them the freedom to move through the story the way they need to move. It's definitely a very interesting technique. I've never tried it, but I, I think I will try it, see, <laughs> see how it feels. Um, you had another statement where you said that you're not right, you know, in regards to Yellow Wife, you're not writing about slavery, you're writing about love. How did that uh, inspire your writing? And, and what does that mean? It took me a little while to get to that point. Because when I started Yellow Wife, it was really like, oh, my gosh, this historical moment. Um, I'm writing about, you know, this slave girl who went through this and went through that. And I was having a hard time moving the story forward. I called one of my writing mentors and she was the one who said, Sadiqwa, I think the reason why you're getting stuck is because you're focused on the time period, but slavery really is the backdrop of the story. At the heart of the story, there is love, there's motherhood, there's sacrifice, um, there's relationships. When you focus on those moments and really focus on the humanity of your character, 
the the backdrop of the story will still be there and inform the story, but your characters will move forward because they they are human people. And even though we're living in the midst of the coronavirus, if I was writing a story now, the story wouldn't be about the coronavirus. It would be about the way people moved in the world and their lives during this period of history. So once I separated that, it was it was much easier for me to figure out how to move the story forward. And that was a problem that I only had as a writer, uh, writing Yellow Wife. And I think it's because it was my first go at historical fiction. When I was just focused on uh, the other three novels that were just set in the in the moment that I opened the book, I didn't necessarily have that um, to to figure out. What's well, an, an important lesson, uh, and it's as as a historical writer, I you know I can say that that is difficult. You want you want to teach people about that history. You know, you do all your research, you figure out all the facts, the dates, the people. Then you kind of forget. Oh wait, we're you know we need to humanize these people and and um, make them relatable through their you know through their relationships and their conflicts and all those things that happen. So it's a really important lesson. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell me more about what you are uh, working on now and and um, where where do you see that going? So I'm working on a novel now. It's also historical fiction. It takes place between 1947 and 1951. And I'm writing about two women characters. I love writing about strong women, um, strong black women who have something that they have to overcome. And this particular story deals again with motherhood. Uh, It deals with classism, it deals with colorism. And it's a moment in history where women didn't have the rights that they have today. And they have to make very difficult decisions, keep secrets to kind of move forward to have the life that they think they want to have. And what did you say the time period was? Uh, It's 1947 through 1951. Today. It could change, but that's where I am today. Okay. Well, I will definitely look forward to that. I, I sincerely enjoyed uh, reading Yellow Wife, and um, I can't imagine, it must have been a little scary for you to kind of switch genres the way you did. It was very scary. In fact, when I when I was kind of given this story in my head, I was walking around with it and I was doing the research, but I kept saying, oh my gosh, I am not qualified. Like there there has to be a special skill set that you need, a class you need to take or something to write historical fiction. Clearly, I don't have it. And I shared that thought with a friend and I said, you know, I'm terrified. And she said, Sadiqwa, the thing that scares you most is what you're supposed to be working on next. And that kind of freed me up a little bit and opened the door for me to say, you know what, let me just give it a shot. Great job doing that. And and uh, I'm glad you did. And and we'll look forward for, for uh, more historical fiction from you. Well, I've been talking with Sadiqwa Johnson, author of Yellow Wife. Sadiqwa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you.
You there? Yeah, now I can hear you. I think we lost each other for a second. I'm going to move my computer because yeah. sometimes in okay. my office, there's some tricky spots and I may have been sitting in a tricky spot. So this I know works. So I'm going to sit here. Um, okay.